Virtualization Combining the Uncombinable. Welcome to the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast, Episode 33. Thank you for joining me for another episode of the Mastering Embedded Systems Podcast. I'm Georg Lohrer, and this is the podcast dedicated to challenges within the embedded systems realm. I tell you the know-how and teach you the ways to succeed and overcome your daily obstacles and roadblocks in embedded systems projects. Last week, I came together with some interesting interview guests. We've gotten acquainted at the Embedded World Exhibition in Nuremberg in February this year. The Ilbus company are providing a bare metal hypervisor for embedded systems. In our interview, we discussed a lot about details of virtualization, details, caveats and benefits. Uh, we sometimes ended up in really deep technical details, details which might be really hard to understand for someone who has never come in touch with virtualization at all. And by the way, what does this virtualization mean? And what's this bare metal? Questions like this popped up in my mind as I deja vued the interview. Is that really understandable? Instantly? Mm, no. And therefore, I have composed this episode. This is an episode about virtualization in IT technologies. An episode which should give you an overview about different approaches of virtualization. The why and what's in all that stuff. You'll find links and additional information in the show notes for this episode at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 33. Stay tuned and be inspired. Let's first tackle the, the question, what does this virtualization mean? effectively mean. Let's first have a look at Merriam-Webster. What does virtual mean? Virtual has two different basic understandings. First, it means very close to being something without actually being it. And second, existing or occurring on computers or on the internet. Most likely, many of us have come into touch with the second one, but something is not really existing in reality, but it's somewhere in, in, in the internet, some groups, forums, or whatsoever, everything is virtual. But uh, in this approach, in this episode about virtualization, we are tackling the first understanding. So I repeat, very close to being something without actually being it. So it means there is, it should be, but it isn't, or something like, yeah, it's not really there, but it is instead, or it's not really clear. So let's say it that way. It's a technique to provide a certain kind of virtual machine environment. Now we are much more closer already. Sometimes it's even a complete simulation of the underlying hardware. So we are simulating our hardware, which is effectively not existing. It's something like we are doing something which is not available. Let's have a more complete definition. Virtualization is a framework or methodology of dividing the resources of a computer into multiple execution environments. What does that now look in the details? First of all, what's in it? What, what, what does virtualization mean in the manner of what's, what's going on there? 
it already started quite a long time ago. It was already in the 1950s as the first beginners. It was, it was a discussion also with Donald Knud. You, you know, Donald Knud, yeah, so the, the, the big books about um, IT technologies and uh, software algorithm and all that jazz. So it's something like started already in 1950 and It has continued in the mid-1960s with IBM's M4444X project architecture, which was based on virtual machines. So the main machine was an IBM 7044, that's the M44, and each virtual machine was an experimental image of the main machine, the so-called 44X. And then finally, it continued in the 1974, as IBM realized with their famous 36 series, the first virtualization, which is which was done in a regular way. All over, virtualization is mainly a trend. A trend um, most likely or mainly coming from enterprise IT. So it means you can cover autonomic computing, so a scenario in which the IT environment will be able to manage itself based on a perceived activity, Or you have some kind of utility computing in which computers process power or in which computers processing power is seen as a utility that clients can pay for only as a needed on a needed base. You might remember, or maybe you have already already done sometime, you have got the power of the Amazon Elastic Cloud Computing. So the EC2, that's a cloud server and hosting service. This you can simply rent on a daily manner, on a performance manner. I have it don't have it in mind exactly, but I have one time set up a, a, a server there to get some, some details together, a little bit familiar with it. So you can simply pay for it and then you get utility computing for it. The usual goal of virtualization, however, is that uh, you want to centralize the administrative tasks while in parallel improving the scalability and the workloads. So that could now be evaluated on a very high and top level or also on a very low level. In general, we have five different types of virtualization, and you will just see that it mainly comes from this enterprise IT. We have the uh, so-called hardware virtualization. We come to that later on because it's the main way how it is used in nowadays, or you might be familiar with it already. When we have the desktop virtualization, that's mainly the virtual desktop infrastructure. You might have this kind of uh, Citrix clients, for example. You are streaming a desktop to your own system from somewhere from a cloud service or from a mainframe system, something like that. And you, you are doing you, the desktop is not really created on your system, you only see the virtualized desktop. Or you have application virtualization. That's similar as the desktop virtualization, but it only belongs to one particular uh, application. It's, for example, if you have, uh, if your employees are mainly using Microsoft Office programs, it does not really make sense to have that everybody has its own installation on his bo on his system, but he streams the application to his uh, to his own system, and it's something you have, for example. Uh, If you know the Google Docs, that's a typical application virtualization. You are running a test, uh, a text processor or a spreadsheet a calculation program on your system, but it's not natively, natively run on your system, but it's inside of the web browser in that case. There are also different opportunities, and then it's virtually available. 
When as a fourth, we have storage virtualization. That's rather important uh, because it provides you some kind of a continuous amount of storage independent where the storage is, is located. So you might have different uh, network access storages or other uh, other storage capabilities available and we are combined to one big bundle and you only see a piece of that bundle independent what's the hardware underlying so for it has it has the the big benefit that you can size it you can resize it you can reuse it you can move it you can uh, migrate it to some other thing all under the hood you do not recognize it you are only working on top of it so on the virtualized storage and the same is available that's the fifth point um the network virtualization. It's also possible for networking to do some kind of abstraction. You have a, an abstract network device, or you might have an abstract network at all, and you are you don't know, you might, for example, run IP on it. Uh, but underneath there might be something completely different, ATM or anything else which is familiar to transport IP over it, and you don't recognize it. You don't know it. It's some, you are accessing the the networks, the, the network storage or the network device via IP. It goes into the network, and there it is handled in a completely different way. So you are abstracted from that network realization. So your network is virtualized. Okay, let's come back to the first version or the first type of virtualization, the so-called hardware virtualization. There are, in general, there are mainly two different flavors of hardware virtualization. First, we have the so-called platform virtualization, that only allows a certain or modified software to run within a virtual machine. That's something we will come later on to it again. And mainly, and that's what we regularly observe, it's the so-called full virtualization, which means that every salient feature of the hardware is reflected into one of several virtual machines, including full instruction sets, input-output operation, interrupts memory, etc. Everything you want to have is reflected in the virtual machine, although it's it's not in the reality available. It's mapped somehow into the hardware, into the real stuff. Full, full virtualization is possible only with the right combination of hardware and software elements. It was up to the mid-2000 years that it was not possible to fulfill that requirement. I will later on come to the requirements of such a virtual machine monitor, how it is called, also called hypervisor. But now we have seen five types of virtualization. We've seen different flavors of hardware virtualization, and that's the one we want to emphasize in this episode. But the question is still, why? Why do we want to have virtualization? Only, only for joke, for, for gambling, or for because we can do it? No, effectively not. There are real reasons behind. Let's, let's number some of them. First, virtual machines can be used to consolidate the workload of several underutilized servers to fewer machines, perhaps a single machine. That's what we always observe. I have had, for example, a root server in use, and this root server was only doing my mail, uh, was providing three or four uh, websites, 
This root server was a dedicated machine placed somewhere in Germany in a data center. So it needs its, its power, it has its cabinet, it needs uh, air, it needs air condition, all that stuff must be provided to that dedicated server. And to be honest, this server has done 99% of the day nothing because it was simply idling. And as I detected that, so at the very beginning, it was quite amazing to have this kind of, um, of, of hardware somewhere which is directly connected to the internet with its own IP address, of course, not something like behind a nut or anything like that, but it's effectively available. And then I said, no, I want to do it uh, in a more appropriate way. It's also cheaper. So this kind of dedicated servers are regularly quite expensive. You have to pay, pay a, a regular monthly fee for that. And I said, okay, I want to, jump over to a virtualized server. So it's a virtual server. It's located, I have now a virtual server which is co-located with some other servers. I think it's something like 20 different other servers on one real effective hardware running. So it's much more better used because my, my needs have not changed since yet. I'm still running two websites. I have the mail over that and that's it, nothing more. And for that reason, it's a good opportunity for virtualization. One other thing I also have in mind here is uh, virtualization is good for uh, running a legacy application. For example, um, I have had a customer um, for, which, for whom I have provided uh, um, industrial automation, so machine control applications, and it was a quite amazing old compiler suite. And it was only runnable in something like Windows, Windows, Windows 95 was one, and the other one was uh, some Windows server somehow. And uh, at Windows... No, it, it was not even runnable. It was runnable on Windows NT, but not on Windows 2000 um, and on Windows 7. So that, that was it. So that's the correct numbering. And for that reason, I have had an old PC with Windows 95 on it and then a PC with Windows NT on it. And that gets too old. And then I said, okay, good. I want to get rid of it. I have a newer hardware. I provided the newer hardware, set up an, a virtual machine. And in that virtual machine, I run this legacy stuff, this legacy compiler suite based on Windows 95. And this can be now burned onto the onto DVD and I can use it somewhere on some system. It's completely independent. I have the full system with me. So that's one good opportunity why you want to use virtualization. And also, if you have some kind of securing or isolated sandbox needs for your, to running, for example, untrusted applications, a virtual machine is the best. Yeah, so also if you want to have a debugging or performance monitoring, for both of them, you might, for example, look for Kali Linux. It's provided also by Offensive Security. I have made one three or four years ago. I made some, some uh, uh, so pen intrusion, um, or yeah, yeah, it was something like pen testing um, course with them, and we provided uh, Kali Linux. That's a dedicated Linux running on in a virtual machine. You get the whole the whole virtual machine. You can start it, and you have all the tools and instruments available you need for intrusion detection, you need for intruding, and all that activity you want to, might have around that. You can also use virtual machines to create operating system or execution environments with the resource limits and given the right schedulers, resource guarantees. For example, you say, I want to see whether my system really runs sufficiently with only 256 megabytes of, of RAM. And you don't have to modify your RAM equipment and you, in your hardware. You simply reduce the amount of available RAM in your virtual machine. 
Or you want to have a virtual machine which provides the illusion of a hardware or a hardware configuration that you do not even have. So something for like you want to run uh, quite old SCSI devices or multiple processors. Virtual machines can also be used to run, uh, to run multiple, operating system, uh, multiple operating systems uh, simultaneously. So you have different versions or even completely different systems which can be on hot standby. Another also very often used um, reason to to run virtualization, to use virtualization is that you can isolate the machines. Uh, so we can isolate what we run, so we can provide fault and error containment. You can inject faults. For example, that's very good for testing. You can inject faults proactively into the software to study the subsequent behavior. And Last not least, though it's, it's a very long list, but last not least, it's uh, virtual machines make software easier to migrate. So you can simply move it from one virtual machine monitor to another one. Okay, now let's go a little bit into the deeper details. What types of virtualization are available? First of all, here we have three different types of virtualization. Uh, first is operating system virtualization, second is so-called para-virtualization, and the third one is hardware emulation. Let's start with the first one. You have, the, uh, you have a type of virtualization which is called operating system virtualization. This kind of virtualization creates an abstract view of the operating system, including everything like root file system, process table, etc., etc., we are suitable for very homogeneous operating system environments where a consistent operating system is necessary. And there are, you find this kind of, um, of virtualization type very often in data centers. You have only the opportunity, for example, to run Linux on the system. You cannot use anything else. And we using operating system virtualization to provide you a dedicated Linux system, but you only get a, a specific uh, a specific Linux version, a specific distribution and a specific version, you cannot change it. So, for example, where are the underlying software might be, OpenVC, uh, Virtuoso, or also Sun Solaris, and when you have, you have uh, the, the Solaris operating systems on it. One of the biggest disadvantages of operating system virtualization is obvious. So, we support only one operating system as a base, and Guest OS is a, is a sync in a single server. So you have to choose a single operating system, such as either Windows or Linux, and all the operating system in the container should be the same version and should have the same patch level of the base OS. If the base OS crashes, all the virtual container become unavailable. The advantage of the operating system virtualization is that since the operating system virtualization provides least overhead among all types of virtualization solutions, we offer highest performance and highest density of virtual environment. So you see, that's very often the reason why it is used in such a scenario as I mentioned in the data center, because you can, you have a very good efficiency with them. So a very small layer of additional maintenance and additional control software you need to use. But operating system virtualization, you will not come across that often. You might find the second type of virtualization more often. It's the so-called para-virtualization. Well, that's a strange word. I, I struggle with that a lot until I have, 
I don't know whether I have really understood it, but it's something like um, I might get close, I might become closer to it. So, para virtualization does not emulate a hardware environment in software. Instead, it coordinates or multiplexes the access to hardware resources in favor of virtual machining. What does that mean? In a para-virtualized environment, as a guest operating system, this is very often called a domain U. Domain U does not contain any device drivers for network or storage. Instead of that, to gain this kind of device driver accesses for network and storage, another guest OS is installed, the so-called domain O, which has a direct access to the hardware. And now all the guest OSs, all the domain U's, have to access the hardware resources via domain O. That means when a guest OS needs to access hardware resources, it sends a message to the domain O that access the hardware on behalf of the guest OS. When the data returns to the hardware, or when data returns to the hardware, domain O reads the information and passes it back to the guest operating system that has requested it. So it's a little bit like NAT on the network side. Domain O is a standard operating system like Linux that has been modified to communicate with hypervisors to control the access to the hardware. Paravirtualization uses device drivers uh, of the domain O, so it must be a native, complete distribution of, of some operating system. And all the guest operating systems have stub drivers that communicate with the stub drivers in the privileged guest. Instead of making direct contact with the hardware, we are only accessing their counterpart in the domain O. And it's very obvious, the major drawback of para-virtualization is the requirement of modifying the guest operating system to execute and communicate with the hypervisor. You must modify the kernel of the guest OS before you can install it. And it's mainly not usable for OSs which cannot be modified. Like most of the commercial operating systems, like for example Windows, you will never find Windows in a para-virtualized uh, environment. It's not possible because it will not communicate with the, with, the with the domain O system. It has no stops in it. Instead, you have to use things like Linux or OpenSolaris. A very prominent representative of the para-virtualization is the Sen. It's written X-E-N, and it's a very old implementation for virtualization. That's para-virtualization. Para in the matter of, it's not really available, and we are tunneling through, and yeah, it's, it's rather complicated. And the question is, why is it that complicated? That's easy. Well, we first have to look at a little bit at some kind of definition about a virtual machine manager. So that's um, a piece of software or also a piece, um, a little bit a part of the hardware, which is available to manage virtual machines running on it. There was um, a requirement raised by Popek and Goldberg, uh, two guys here which have set a set of conditions sufficient for a computer architecture to support system virtualization effectively. We have, in 1974, it was defined. And it's something like uh, we have introduced the idea of a virtual machine monitor, that's so-called VMM, or also called hypervisor. It's a piece of software that provides the abstraction of a virtual machine. The paper the two guys have, have defined or have, have written um, defines three properties for a virtual machine monitor. 
So follow the hypervisor. Let's have a look at these three properties. Because uh, with these three properties, it becomes clear why we nowadays mainly are talking only about these three ones and about the hardware emulation and different kind of hypervisors and para virtualization or um, the, the op operating system virtualization is not really in use uh, anymore. Or it, it is still in use, but it's not that often and the other ones are the major part. So the first property to define a virtual machine monitor or, or hypervisor is efficiency. That means all instructions are executed by the hardware directly with no intervention at all on the part of the control program. That means the virtualized the virtualization should not translate an, an assembler statements. It should not be it should not translate instructions directly because this will cost efficiency. The second property is resource control. It means it must be impossible for that arbitrary programs to affect the system resources, for example, memory, uh, which is available to them. So the allocator of the control program is to be invoken, invoked upon any attempt. So what does, what does that mean? It simply means the virtual machine monitor, the hypervisor, must be in complete control of the virtualized, virtualized resources. The virtualized resources are not allowed to have any kind of resource control which is aside or underneath of the hypervisor. And then, third, the equivalence. Equivalence here means that a programming a program running under the hypervisor should exhibit a behavior essentially identical to what demonstrated when running on an equivalent machine directly. So from an outside perspective, it means you should not see any kind of difference if the system or if the program is running on the virtual machine or on a real machine. You see, now we have these three kind of definitions. We have the efficiency, so it means a statistically dominant fraction of machine instructions must be executed without any kind of intervention of the hypervisor. Then second, resource control. Everything must be under control of the hypervisor. And equivalence, that we should not see any kind of difference between virtualized running or not virtualized running. Coming back to my original question, why was para-virtualization done? Why, why that complicated? Yeah, These three properties could not have been fulfilled until the mid-2000 years. So something like 2005, 2006, it was not possible to realize it effectively. And therefore, we have done some other approaches to do it. But I want to concentrate on the third type of virtualization, the hardware emulation. And here now, we have two different hypervisor types. And we keep these three properties in mind if you're discussing about that. First of all, we have the so-called type 1 hypervisor. A type hypervisor is a very, very thin abstraction layer, a very, very thin, small operating system uh, on top of the, the pure processor. And therefore, it's very, type 1 hypervisors are very often called bare metal hypervisor. The type 1 hypervisors are gaining popularity because building the hypervisor into the firmware, that's very often pos possible, is proving to be more efficient. 
Type 1 hypervisors provide most, very often, mostly, will provide higher performance, better availability, and higher security than Type 2 hypervisors. Okay, so what are Type 2 hypervisors? Type 2 hypervisors are running on the host operating system. So on Type 1, you have some kind of a very, very small, thin layer. It could not be really named uh, an operating system because it has not it has it has only very limited functions dedicated only for virtual machine monitoring so to hyperwise and but it's very thin very small and on the uh, on the other side you can say i want to provide a full operating system on the host you, you for example you are running a full linux system as a type 2 hypervisor in this case, the virtualization movement first began to take off the moment uh, the Type 2 hypervisors were very popular because it was, it was available. They were available instantly. You have had an operating system like Linux which was available and which, which was modified a little bit and there is an application called QEMU and together with some kernel, um, some kernel device support, it's the KVM support, it became a Type 2 hypervisor. Um, the QEMU, if I take that as an example, is a free and open source hosted hypervisor that performs hardware virtualization, and QEMU is hosted virtual machine monitor. It emulates a CPU um, through dynamic binary translation, and it provides a set of device models. So it enables a run, uh, it, it runs a variety of unmodified guest operating system. It also can be used, as mentioned, together with KVM in order to run virtual machines at near native speed. And that's the essential point now. QEMU, this which an application which is based on Linux, runs and provides the hypervisor facilities and hypervisor needs. And on the other side, you have a kernel module or the, the, the system, um, the, the Linux kernel, which is run together with KVM. And uh, this both together provide the facilities, provide the support when Linux becomes a type 2 hypervisor. For example, there is the regular recommendation that type 2 hypervisors uh, can be mainly used on client systems where efficiency is less critical or on systems where support for a broad range of I.O. devices is important and can be provided by the host operating system. If you are using a KVM and QEMU, for example, or if you are using VMware, um, uh, so VMware Workstation, VMware um, what, a Player, uh, or some our Hyper-V, for example, by Microsoft, if you are using them, you have a Type 2 hypervisor. And these Type 2 hypervisors have, of course, the, the, the benefit that you have the full operating system available to be virtualized. So you have all the, op you have all the device drivers, you have all the devices available. You can, you can natively plug or push anything forward into the virtual machines. And the guys of you running VirtualBox, for example, or VMware or a Hyper-V know you can root everything inside of the virtual machine, whether it's USB, audio, a sound, and, and network devices, whatever you have. Everything could be simply forwarded into the virtual machine. That's not possible with Type 1 hypervisors because the Type 1 hypervisor might provide only or is might be only available for a dedicated amount of hardware because in that very thin layer 
of the of, of abstraction, you will have to realize hardware access. You will have to support a dedicated or a specific amount of hardware underneath. That was one of the main challenges, as I remember darkly with the VMware ESX. That was a bare metal hypervisor, ESXi. Was, it was named like that, I think. Uh, and for that reason, I have set it up one time, and it was a pain to set it up because I haven't had the right hardware for it. You need, I need to patch into the hypervisor, into the bare metal hypervisor, to get it run with some network device which was na not natively supported. It was really a big challenge to get it to get it running. Okay, so we have three different types of virtualization. We have the operating system virtualization, the power virtualization, and the hardware emulation. The hardware emulation is by far the most common, the most popular way to virtualize systems nowadays. We have the big, broad amount of Type 2 hypervisors, which are mainly also freely available, like VirtualBox, for example, or the VMware Player. And uh, on the other side, you have Type 1 hypervisors. You have mainly, you have mostly pay for. I effectively do not know um, type one hypervisor which is free. I know where, where is where is one free for for becoming accessible. You will see in the in the interview in the next episode with the Ilbus company. We have um, type one hypervisor running on a banana PI, and that's free for exercising, free for experiment, experimenting reasons, simply for studying. Okay, let's come back to our initial topic, hypervisors, and belonging to the, the podcast uh, itself, it's hypervisors in embedded systems. That's something, uh, it, it's, not, it's not that much different, but it's a little bit different. Embedded systems, embedded hypervisors, targeting embedded systems and certain real-time operating systems environments are designed with different requirements when compared to desktop and enterprise systems. So we have different uh, attitudes, like, for example, robustness, security, or also real-time capabilities. The resource-constrained nature of many embedded systems, especially battery-powered mobile systems, imposes a further requirement for small memory size and low overhead. In contrast to the ubiquity of the x86 architecture in the PC world, the embedded world uses a wider variety of architectures and less standardized environments. Support for virtualization requires memory protection, a distinction between user mode and privileged mode, which rules out most microcontrollers. So this still leaves x86, MIPS, ARM and PowerPC as architectures on medium to high-end embedded systems, which will and can support virtualization based on hypervisors. As manufacturers of embedded systems usually have the source code to their operating systems, we have less need for full virtualization in this space. So it depends on which application you have that you really find a real um, hypervisor for, for usage in embedded systems. Instead, the performance advantages of para-virtualization makes this usually the virtualization technology of choice. So if you have, as, as you remember, para-virtualization means you are running more or less the same, the same operating systems. One is some kind of a master, it's a domain, domain O, and there are domain U uh, operating systems, that's the guest OS systems, which needs to be adapted. But as you are the manufacturer of the operating systems or you are the vendor of the, or the manufacturer of the hardware combined with the software, it's no, it's no problem. So therefore, you can use that uh, virtualization technology directly. 
However, if you come into the situation where you want to run your own systems or that you have dedicated needs, for example, as mentioned, for security or also real-time needs, then you need to have a real hypervisor. Best would be a Type 1 hypervisor, a bare metal hypervisor. So, and ARMS and MIPS have added full virtual support as an option uh, into their processors and has included uh, in their latest high-end processors and architecture versions like, for example, the ARM Cortex-A15 or the ARM V8. With these processors, you have a full virtualization support and then you can run a bare metal hypervisor on it. Bare metal hypervisors are the luxury class of hypervisors. We are that close to the hardware you will regularly not see any kind of significant difference independent your application is running natively or virtualized. And this is, now we are finally, at, we are at the end of this episode and this is exactly the point I want to be with you for introducing to next episode in the discussion with Barusan Ismanogolov and Alexander Smirnov from Ilbers. And we are providing, we are offering, we are manufacturing a bare metal type 1 hypervisor, the so-called Mango. In our interview with Barusan Ismagulov and Alexander Smirnov, we are mainly talking about hardware-emulated type 1 virtualization, the so-called bare metal hypervisor. If you have questions or if you are interested in further details or you have a feedback, don't hesitate and visit the show notes at embeddedsuccess.com slash episode 33. As you know, it's a lot of work to provide this kind of information on a regular basis, not only for me, but also for my guests. If you are enjoying this podcast, or if you are at least regularly listening to it, and if you want to make me happy, then please provide me a review at iTunes. And in parallel, I would be really happy to receive your feedback. Drop me a note at embeddedsuccess.com slash feedback. In this sense, this was the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. I hope you got some inspiration, some ideas, or simply some entertainment with this episode. I'm Georg Lohrer from the Mastering Embedded Systems podcast. Thank you for listening.